book of 2 Samuel this morning. Yes, we are out of 1 Samuel, and we are starting um, 2 Samuel. And if you've been joining us, you know that we've been looking at the life of David, and this marks the halfway point of not just the series, but for David's life in general. And so um, we're going to look at this lament that begins or marks the midway point of, of, of his life. Just also another reminder, as we, just a little bit about how we think about our sermon series, we tend to want to pick books and go through them as we can, um, allowing the text to um, pick the topic as opposed to importing our topic into the text. And so um, that's kind of what we've been doing. Now, we can't hit every mark, so we notice we skipped a few chapters that I'll give a brief summary to here in a second. Um, but um, that's what we cho- choose to do here, and I don't know if that's new for you or whatever church tradition you've come from, but this allows us to get a sense of the book in context and allows us to be true to what the text is, uh, is saying as opposed to uh, digging up topics of our own interests, uh, although we do sometimes have topical sermons. But this will feel more like that this morning because we are going to look at the topic of lament because that's what our text is dealing with, lament. So just wanted to um, mention that. If you are, I have opened now to the book of 2 Samuel, which is on page 254 of your, your pew Bible. Let me read for us chapter 1, verses 17 to 27. Let's give our attention to the reading of God's word. And David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and Jonathan, his son. And he said, it should be taught to the people of Judah. Behold, it is, it is written in the book of Deshar. He said, your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath. Publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon. Lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice. Lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. You mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor fields of offerings. For there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul not anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in life and in death they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. You daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. Jonathan lies slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary surpassing the love of women, how the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perish. Amen. Let me pray and ask God to teach us his word this morning. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your word to us this morning. We pray now that you would open our eyes and our ears, that we would see and hear things otherwise we could not. By your spirit, you would produce a fruit in us that we would leave here changed people because of your goodness to us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, we left David last week in Ziklag, navigating life between King Saul of Israel and King Achish of the Philistines. And chapter 28, verse 2, leads us with a bit of a cliffhanger as he's invited to go out to war. Uh, Not just any war, but to go fight his own people, Israel. And what you get all the way up to the end of the book is, is sort of what we're used to when we watch, uh, you know, a TV show, all right? We, we, we bring you a character, and we take you to a suspenseful point, and we don't resolve it, and we move to another character, and we show you what's going on here. And that's kind of what the feel is all the way to the end where Saul dies. And Saul dies in the battle, uh, in battle with the Philistines, and his, his, his death is tragic as 1 Samuel ends. We find that he asks for a mercy killing by his armor-bearer, and this armor-bearer rightly refuses. Saul then falls on his own sword, and he dies. And then the armor-bearer kills himself. The Philistines then come in and take Saul's body and cut off his head and strip him of his armor. It's a sad but otherwise, quote-unquote, normal scene regarding battle in those days. And I appreciate the Bible not sanitizing it for us, but this is how... 1 Samuel ends. And so we come upon 2 Samuel, which opens up with David receiving Saul's new, the news of Saul's death and Jonathan's as well. And that's where we are this morning. And the question is, is how will David respond to this? How will David respond to the news that Saul is dead And for those that have been with us throughout the series and know a little bit about that relationship, how would you expect him to respond? You know, maybe even take a moment to reflect on your own heart as you know how Saul has pursued David, tried to kill David, has been um, somebody that's not been someone of great help for him. Perhaps you can think of people in your own life where that has been the case. How would you respond to that? in light of their death. Will David celebrate now that Saul is dead? And maybe even more so now that David can actually become king? Or will David move past this event very casually? Uh, Life goes on. We have to keep moving. God's got his plan for us, and, you know, Saul was part of that, but now it's it's on to to better things. Will this be his answer No. For some of us, his response might actually come as a surprise. Instead of cheering or even finding relief in Saul's death, David takes time to lament. He takes time to grieve. Verse 11, we didn't read this, says David tore his clothes, which was the act of lament, act of beginning a lamentation for a period of grieving. David's response is to grieve, but not just himself, It's to teach Israel to grieve this death as well. That is David's response. And some of you might be asking, what's a lament, by the way? Good question. We don't necessarily talk about that much in our own culture. Um, The church does, but maybe not where where we live and breathe um, in our work or on TV. To lament is to express grief or sorrow over something or someone. You can also think of lament as a vehicle for processing grief. 
Lament is, as one commentary writes, an expression of thoughtful grief, which means I'm actually going to process it and think about it and deal with it. I'm going to move towards it, not away from it. And that's what I mean when I say I'm not, not sure how much of, uh, of your daily lives the word lament or the practice of lament is a part of it. We, we move at breakneck speed in this world, or our culture anyways, Right, we're busy, we're moving, we're moving, and we do um, at times get interrupted by this thing called death or loss, and we are called then to sort of grieve that for a period. But man, as soon as that funeral's over or whatever it might be, it's on back, it's back to life. There are schedules to be maintained. And I don't know that we're the better for it. Lament is a process. It, it, is, it is saying that I'm going to take time with this. I'm going to, it's a thoughtful expression of how we will grieve what has actually happened. This is what lament is. And so as we turn now back to the text, what, what perhaps would be easy for David, which we understand, is to not do anything. Or, again, what might be normal for him in this day and age to celebrate the fact that Saul is dead and now his kingdom is his, but that's not what he does. David laments. He both expressed and made known his grief to himself and to Israel. And I want to look at David's lament here with the time that we have, and I want us to draw a few implications about what it means to be a community of people who lament. All right, this topic deserves a series in and of itself. I personally just need to say that so that I don't give you that series right now. <laughs> so we're just scratching the surface with this, but I'm not sure there's something more important for the church today than to be a people who practice and demonstrate lamentation. Who are able to look at loss and suffering and not sanitize it, not you know, look at it with rose-colored glasses, but actually do what, what, what humans should do as created in the image of God and as weep over the loss. To recognize its value. To recognize even that this is not the way things are supposed to be because you are part of a different kingdom as a Christian, are you not? You're part of a kingdom that knows no end. And because we have hope in the resurrection, because that's true, it gives us the freedom to step into that space that I think much of our culture doesn't know what to do with, the space of loss and suffering and grieve and weep. That's why it is so important but we'll look at this lament here from David in 2 Samuel and draw a few implications with our time. If you'll start with me in verse 19 to 20, which reads, Your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty warriors have fallen. Don't tell about it in Gath. In other words, it's not good news to be spread. Only our enemies will actually find satisfaction in it, is kind of what the text is saying. From the start, though, we see here uh, that, that honesty, the honesty about what has happened. All right, there is no, as I've already mentioned, rose-colored glasses here or an explanation to sort of cover this up. Your glory, O Israel, is slain. And that's talking both about the king and God's anointed over Israel, but also Israel as a nation itself. To lament it then is to be honest about what has happened, and that's where David starts. Honesty is how we stay connected with reality and lament helps us do that. So David continues in verse 21 saying, the hills of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor field that produces offerings or first fruits. 
Gilboa is where Saul died. So David is, in a sense, cursing it in a way that gives weight to what was lost there. If you don't know about first fruits, it's a fascinating study in Scripture. First fruits were an offering to God for the, uh, you know, for, for or from Israel. What that was is as you went through harvest or as you went through planting and sowing and waited for harvest, you waited for those first buds, right, or whatever it might be. And you prayed that they would come because however the first fruits goes, so goes the rest of the harvest. So if there is a small um, first fruit collection, it doesn't bode well for what's coming behind it. But if it is large and robust and full, then, then people rejoice because we know what's coming behind that harvest as long as there's no drought or anything to come. This is what first fruits was. And so because of that, Israel was called to take those first offerings and not eat them and consume them themselves, but to offer them back to the Lord, both to uh, show their dependence upon him alone and to give thanks for what he has provided. For there at Gilboa then, uh, for this, um, for David then to call for no rain and thus curse the ground where Saul was killed is to give proper weight to the tragedy such as having no first fruits to offer. For there at Gilboa, the shield of the mighty ones was defiled, it says, or thrown away, the shield of Saul not anointed with oil. There is a play on words here that David is using for sure. As the king of Israel, the Lord's anointed, was to act what? As a shield himself to protect his people. And as David is rightly saying, that shield is no more. And it needs to be grieved. This is what has been lost. At the same time, there is a sense of shame that David draws up with this line. It is Israel's shame to have lost their king. They're anointed according to David. This is where David's appeal then to the office as something that needs Israel's respect and attention. And we might understand this part a little better. We do this today when we drive around and we see that there are flags at what? Half-mast. Which is done often because of the loss of officials in our country, uh, foreign dignitaries perhaps, or even former officials, 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 presidents, foreign presidents, we'll leave it at that. But the purpose is simple, right? As a people, we want to acknowledge that loss. And if that loss isn't connected to you, you want to enter into that loss with other people. But at the least, we acknowledge the office, right? Of the person who held it. I might not have voted for that president or that official, but I can honor or respect the office. This is what David's lament does here as well. But by verse 22 to 23, David turns and he then honors both Jonathan and Saul. Jonathan's bow, which is also the name of this lament that many refer to it as the bow. Jonathan's bow and Saul's sword played a significant role both in their lives but in the narrative as well. And so verse 23, um, so he honors that in 22, but 23 seems to be a stretch as we read it because we know (laughs) maybe this isn't, isn't the case. But David is choosing to recognize Jonathan's loyalty to his father the Lord's anointed. Jonathan could have gone to be with David and the others, but instead Jonathan stayed with his father, and for that he is commended. And so David is choosing to recognize that part about him. Verse 24 then is in contrast to verse 20, where the daughters of the Philistines will rejoice. David calls the daughters of Israel to weep over Saul. 
Again, Saul had his problems, but David turns Israel's eyes to see and to remember the good Saul did and how he protected and provided for Israel. After this, we don't hear about Saul again. Verse 25, we get the second time we hear this chorus of the lament, my, the, or how, my, how the mighty warriors have fallen. And then David concludes this lament with a word about David's friendship with Jonathan and how his love for him was, quote, extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. Now, this word for love is used both within human uh, interaction, but also between God and man as well. It's covenantal love. It's hesed. It's faithfulness. This is not then a statement, as some might want to point to it, as uh, uh, referring to their sexuality. But rather, it is a statement of fidelity to someone, their faithfulness. And we talked about this type of faithfulness and friendship when we looked at chapters 18, 19, and 20, when we looked at the relationship of David and Jonathan a few weeks ago. And the value that was put on it actually above marriage in this time and place. We don't have a category today, as we said, for this type of relationship outside of marriage. And therefore, we don't understand or recognize this type of love and don't really know how not to assign a sexual content to it. If something is this strong, then that means it has to be wrapped up in some type of, of sexual content. But, but, but that is not true for this day and age. In this culture, it wouldn't be surprising to say such a thing about one who was as loyal to David and John, as Jonathan was, especially when it would have only benefited Jonathan, again, as we said, for David to have died. That way Jonathan could have had the kingdom. Again, a spouse often had to stay with you, but a friend does not. To read this as a statement about their sexuality would be a great example of importing our own cultural lens into the text, which is a bad way to read anything, let alone Scripture. But this is David's lament. It's honest. It honors Saul and Jonathan. More importantly, it gives Israel a vehicle for their grief, how they should respond to such laws and not forget what happened to their king regardless of your feelings towards him. So what are some of the implications then we can draw from this lament or the practice of lament in general with the remaining time that we have? First, I want to suggest that lament acknowledges the importance of it anyways. It acknowledges to ourselves and those around us that we live in a world where loss and suffering exists. And that might seem obvious to some, but I, I, I'm I'm not sure we live and breathe today, our culture anyways, in a way where we're ready to acknowledge that. And I could talk about how we push death to the margins of our culture. Just put me in a home somewhere and forget about me. Um, we are obsessed with aging. We really believe in our science, that we can live forever. And I am, I'm not going to be surprised when we have people living for three or 400 years. It's totally possible. However, I'm not sure I, I want to live three or 400 years with the heart the way that my spiritual heart is. <laughs> I want to go be with Jesus. I don't think we're going to fix our coveting, so to speak, and all those internal things. But will we be able to live long? Sure, sure. But it's just an indication of how obsessed we are with life. 
And it's because we don't want to acknowledge that we live in a space where death and loss is real. And lament invites us to do that. It invites us to choose reality. And only when you do that can you actually properly grieve and move towards health. At the same time, lamenting does what it, it honors life. It honors what is lost. It says that this has value. And as Christians, we say this because what, it has value because God created it. So to ignore it and to move on would not be helpful at all. When you drive into Washington, D.C., what is the capital area populated with? <clears throat> Memorials. Memorials that don't just honor high-water marks of our country or our leaders, but ones that honor those who have what died. And it's actually a place where as much as we personally push death to the sides, it's a place where you go and it's heavy. Um, it's a place where you can go and lament. Memorials, we choose, with memorials, we, we choose not to hide our loss and suffering, but actually live with it. I remember coming to Washington, D.C. for the first time in eighth grade, which uh, many of you probably took a trip your eighth grade year. And I remember the bus stopping, uh, we were going to get off to go see the Vietnam Memorial. And in my youth at that time, like, I didn't really get it. I didn't understand what I was looking at. I saw a bunch of people, um, you know, who were crying. I saw this big wall full of names. People were going up and they were touching names or taking some carbon or some, um, some paper and, like, you know, highlighting the name so they could take it back with them. I had a lot of questions. But 30 years later, and certainly in that time in between, I get it. I get it. That memorial and others like it not only says life is valuable, but it says we choose to live in a world where loss and suffering exists, and we're not going to avoid that. We choose to be honest about the world we live in, and lamenting is the practice of that honesty. We choose to assign value to what was lost because of who created it. That's what lamenting does. Avoiding suffering is trying to look at the world with rose-colored glasses, which says the opposite. It's why when we, we enter into the pain and suffering of others, <clears throat> and instead of weeping with them, when we're quick to offer a response of, well, hey, it's okay, God has a plan for your life, that that is really not helpful. Yes, God does have a plan, but that's not the time to talk about that. The time, this is the time to be honest about what this person is suffering and going through. Maybe it's more an indication of your own awkwardness and uncomfortableness with the loss that is present that you have to say something. When the Bible says what? Weep with this person. Acknowledge where we live. But that is the way the healing comes. And this is what lament does for, for us. The second thing we see, though, is that lament is not just a private matter here. It's a public matter. You notice that David, the text says David doesn't just lament, but he actually writes this lament so that it will be taught to Israel. Um, about two-thirds of the, the Psalms in the Bible are actual laments, and the majority of those laments are what we call corporate laments, which means that while, while grieving and suffering has a private element to it, it's not to remain private. There's a corporate nature to both the grieving process, the lamenting process, but also the healing process of that. 
Like a memorial, when we grieve publicly, we allow others to share in our grief. At the same time, we commit to not forgetting this loss as a part of our story as God's people. There will be other implications for this down the road for David and Israel. Not just honesty, but the fullness of life. Interesting enough, lamentation is the only way uh, to actually enjoy the fullness that life has to offer because you're, you're, you're saying what is true and honest about the place that I live in. In one hand, while you hold the hope of what you believe in the other, and we'll get to that in a second. But David and Israel will learn that, and learning lament as a people of God shapes them more into his image in this way. By contrast, a community that doesn't lament would best be categorized as a shallow community as ones that have little to offer. In fact, lamenting is so important, it's so crucial for God's people. Jesus says it's indicative of what life in the kingdom actually looks like. And where do we see that? We see that in Matthew 5, at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus gives his beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. What's the second one? Blessed are those who mourn, who grieve, who lament, for they shall be comforted. In this context, Jesus is calling us to mourn or grieve our sinfulness, for sure, our lacking something before a holy God. But it's not just that, is it, right? It's to be people who are able to see the effects of sin in all places and say, that is not the way it's supposed to be. There's something wrong with this. And Christians should be the first to acknowledge that. Otherwise, we grow callous and we grow superficial, disconnected from life. We grow further away from what God is like. Lament is not just a private matter, it is a public one to be done in community. There's much more to be said about this. I'm holding my tongue. Thirdly, for your sake, lamenting uh, in the Bible presupposes a relationship. Lamenting in the Bible presupposes a relationship. David laments because he knows God, period. And, and this is where I, and all this is food for us as believers here, but this is where I really want to set this before you as the entree. It is your invitation and privilege to lament because you have a relationship with a God who can handle that. He invites you to these things. The reason we are given the invitation to lament or cry out to God, as many in the Psalms do, is because God has covenanted with us and has called us his what? His children. It's that relationship then that invites us to bring our grief and sadness to the Lord. This becomes more clear when we talk about what lamenting is not, when we contrast it to complaining or to, you know, venting. Lamenting is different than venting or complaining. Lamenting is being hurt and willing to move into that hurt, not being angry. Lamenting is actually a form of praise in Scripture. N.T. Wright is helpful here where he contrasts the two of these, saying in the Scriptures, complaint and lament occur in different contexts and can be distinguished as different concepts. We can say that a complaint in Scripture is an accusation against God that what maligns his character. But a lament is an appeal to God based on confidence in his character. For example, we've been talking about the wilderness generation in this series. And what did that wilderness generation do? They complained. It's a different word. 
And what did that complaint sound like? Why did you bring us out here? Did you bring us out here to die, right? That's a complaint that brings what? An accusation against God's character. In the Psalms, however, in worship, lament is an appeal to God based on prior knowledge of who he is. Consider Psalm 13, a lament of David. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? This may sound like a complaint, but it's not. And why? Because laments in Scripture often always end with a statement of trust. What is that for for Psalm 13? But I have trusted in your steadfast love, David says. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation, being reminded of the promise that God has given to him. I will sing to the Lord then because he has dealt bountifully with me. What What is that saying? In this way, lament presupposes a relationship. That's the whole point of that. Complaining says, I I don't know who this person is because I don't trust that they're going to provide for me. I'm anxious. I'm I'm afraid. Lament knows exactly who they are going to with their sorrow and grief. One of the most powerful, powerful tools that God gives us as his people, and the more you think about this, the more astonishing it is, he gives his people permission to lament. Lament. And it's a reflection of his goodness and care to us to do so. This is why lament presupposes a relationship. And what is the context of our relationship today with God? As we come off the pages of 2 Samuel, right, and we come into Wallace Presbyterian Church, College Park, Maryland, what's the context for your relationship with God that gives you permission to weep? It's the cross. It's the cross. The cross says, this is why you can trust me. The cross says, right, this is my character. This is who I am. The cross is our context for appealing to God based on prior knowledge of who he is. And who is he? He is is not a distant parent. He is someone who says, I will die for you. That's my commitment to you. I will take all that is lost in pain and suffering so that one day you will only know peace and rest and salvation. That is coming, but he also gives us something for the moment. And this is the most important part for today, right? It's in our suffering and in our grieving as we cry out to the Lord that we actually get to know him better. And is there any sweeter reward, as ironic as that sounds, in the midst of grief and suffering that Christians can actually grow? Because in that lamentation, that crying out, you are knowing something of your Savior too, right? A Savior who knows a lot about suffering. A Savior who knows a lot about lamenting as well. In fact, as we close here, this is the pattern for us moving forward after this halfway point with David. The pattern is this, and I'll leave you here, is calling, suffering, lamenting, and crown. We've seen it in David's life so far. God has called him to be king. He has gone to suffer, wandering in the wilderness, running from Saul. Here, we have a lament right before crown. And it's no surprise that this sets up another pattern of calling, suffering, lament, and crown as we turn to the pages of the New Testament and see Jesus. That he too followed this pattern as well.
And the reason I leave you here is that, is that while there are certain things going on with those two that aren't going on with us, there are some things that we can say about this. And that is, is that as Christians, as we choose to follow Jesus, that will be our pattern as well. And the question that I leave you with is, are we as a church going to choose to live in that reality? That to follow Jesus is, is, is a calling to suffer, to lament before our crown. Which as Paul notes, as we read earlier, that crown is an eternal weight of glory that surpasses all suffering. Calling, suffering, lament, and crown. This is the way of David. This is the way of, of Christ as we, as we see in the New Testament. And this will be the way for us as well. Is that true for you this morning? Is that what Christianity is for you? Would we be a people who cry out not just for our own sufferings, but for the sufferings of those sitting next to us? For God's people. And would we know for our lament, not that it speaks of hopelessness. Would the, would the world know that from our lament, that it doesn't speak of hopelessness, but it speaks of what the certain hope we have because we know the one that we cry out to, who has given his life for us, who has defeated death in his resurrection and has ascended to the throne of God where he rules all things. It is to him that he has invited us to cry out to. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word in 2 Samuel, the privilege to bring our sorrows, our griefs to you. That This is not a sign of faithlessness, but it's actually a sign of, 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 of faith. An expression of faith. Because we, we know how the story ends. We, we know how you care for us. And it's in that context that gives us the freedom to bear our soul, to be honest about what is going on in this world that you know much of as well. You know more than we do. Would we be a people who lament? Would we be people who through our lament know you more through that, through our sufferings that you um, have experienced as well? We pray this for our church. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.